0: Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
1: Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. We're going to be talking about New Testament codes. Codes. Things that are mysterious. Things that we don't know how to interpret. That are hidden. That are invisible to us. We know the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is to be made manifest in a physical way. Through us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And that code is like a spiritual genetic code. It is the image of God being rewritten in us. We are being remade, new individuals, in that image of God. You see, we were originally made in the image of God, and then we were remade by sin and another image, like a cancer the code was interrupted, broken. Actually, to some degree, what happened was we lost access to elements of that code. Just like your own genetic code, 40 to 50% of your own genetic code is not even turned on. It's not having any effect. It's not producing what it needs to be producing in you as a genetic code. And we've talked before about experiments with fish where they change the resonance in the water from what is normally considered the Schumann resonance, which is everywhere on this planet. And they they block that out with a Faraday-type structure and then put a new resonance inside that container containing the fish in the aquarium. And allowed fish eggs to hatch out and grow. And the fish that hatched out were very uniform, but not what they would normally be. They were a different fish. Different genetic codes turned on. And produced a different fish that was more in sync, more... You know, when they swam around as a school, they moved together. Better, they were healthy, they were strong, but they were different. That's the change we're looking for. Political offices offer us change, but they don't describe what it is. But our change is changing our nature to that of the nature of God. And what is the nature of God? The nature of God is a God of creation, a God of giving, a God of forgiving, a God of righteousness. And that's why the gospel begins with the idea of seeking first the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God, the right to have that godlike genetic code turned in on in us, that spiritual code first. And then the body, the flesh, will eventually conform to that because first was spirit, and the spirit moved upon the waters, and creation began in this physical realm. But there is a war, a conflict going on that does not want that code turned on, that spiritual code in our hearts and our minds to be rewritten in the image of God. It wants you to stay like it is. You see, it, the adversary, has gone out of the presence of God, has turned their back on the truths of God, have shut down part of that code, that character of God. And in doing so, in doing so, they have cut themselves off and been altered. So where did they get their life? They get their life from you. They get their life from others. They devour others. They consume others. And they cannot consume those that have the genetic code of God turned on in their hearts and their minds. They need to have you turn your back on God and enter into their realm, into their world, on their level. They need you to fight and, and agree and to anything as long as it's on their level. They have to bring you down to their level, and then you're on the menu. You're part of their resources. They can come and devour you because of the fact that you are like them. Isn't that the way the mafia works and 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 other agencies of the world work? Is they want to get you like them. They want you to turn off the characteristics that are not like them, so that you are left with only the characteristics that are like them, and then they have you. They got you. And you can do all the holier than now, uh, preaching and praising and, uh, quoting the Bible and all the religious books, the Bhagavad Gita, the Koran, uh, I can't think of all of them. Um, But uh, there are so many out there. There are the Vedas. You can study and study and never come to a knowledge of the truth because the truth is spiritual first. Flesh and blood does not reveal the spirit. The spirit reveals the spirit. And so, therefore, the code that you need to crack is a spiritual code. Once you crack that spiritual code, you don't need to crack the other codes. You you begin to see them. You begin to see, you know, like the matrix. You see the code. You see what the code represents, the physical code, because you see the spiritual code. And you see all things anew. You see them with new eyes. And what's happened in the world today is there is a cognitive disconnect to the truth. They cannot see the truth. They can study and study and study, and they cannot see the truth because they cannot see the whole truth. And you see, if you don't have the whole truth, you have a lie. I mean, that is a lie. That is the definition of a lie. Something less than the truth. You can tell lots and lots of things that are true, but it's all a lie because you leave out an important element. You know, the the genetic code that produces your head. You know, there are people born without arms. And there are people born without legs. But there are no people born without heads. If somebody was born with two heads, (laughs) I always thought that was an amazing story of a young girl in the Midwest. It's actually twins, and they have two legs, two arms, and two heads. And they talk to each other. And their sisters. You know. And uh, they used to tease their mother when they were younger that she gets one hug but two kisses when they go to bed. <laughs> and they walk around. They go to school. And uh, they must be in their 20s by now. Uh, amazing. Amazing. But... You cannot be that divided person. You must be one with the Spirit, the original Spirit of God. You must be remade in His image. And so we're going to talk a little bit about those codes, and we're going to use a um, format of uh, Robert Eisenman, who wrote uh, the New Testament Code. And he's a great student of archaeology. And he's kind of a renegade. And of course, that's why I read him. <laughs> because I'm kind of a renegade too. But he seems to be missing something. I can't say that he has completely missed it. Because I haven't read everything he's written. And I haven't talked to him personally. But I see this pattern. And, and it's not surprising. Because it and it has been something that has been missed over and over again. Because of this... Universal cognitive disconnect. This collective unconsciousness. There is an element of Christ that people read the Bible over and over again and it's all in there. And they miss it. And they miss it. And they miss it. And they miss it. And it's right there. And you see it in a pattern. You can see it. But they can't see it. Because it takes humility. You have to be willing to admit you cannot see, you cannot figure out, you cannot crack the code. It must be revealed. This is why Jesus said, flesh and blood is not what he is going to build his church upon, but by revelation. This is what he said to Peter. Not by flesh and blood. You know the answer to this question but because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you spiritually. And in that revelation, that divine revelation in the heart and the mind, the writing of his character directly from him, not from me to you, from him to you, it is by that means he will build his church. Now, there's lots of people out there who say they're the church, and that they're building it, and they're evangelistic, but they're missing something. A very critical point. You know, the head, the thrust of the gospel of the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God. And they're missing it. And so we're going to talk about it in hopes that you don't continue to miss it, so that you begin to see it. And when you see it, you must act upon it. Otherwise, it will flee you again. Because the Holy Spirit is an active spirit. When I wrote the chapter, Heaven versus Heaven, in the book, Covenants of the Gods, it's kind of in the middle there. And it's uniquely different than the other chapters. There's about 15 chapters there, and most of them have to do with how you become separated, how you become bound in another system that is contrary to the way of of God. But heaven versus heaven, which is the same name, heaven versus heaven. Most of them are like law versus legal or Oh, I do have citizen versus citizen, but holy matrimony versus marriage. And we're showing you how relations are created by contracts, by covenants, by constitutions. And, of course, I had to write another book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, so that you would understand how far-reaching this is, how it affects you in your day-to-day life. We've had people joining The Living Network at thelivingnetwork.org. And recently somebody joined, and uh, they talked about how they want to return to the, I don't know if they use the word, principles of the Constitution. And uh, the problem is, is that the Constitution is fundamentally flawed and not biblical. Now, the Bible does talk about having a Constitution written down. But it said there were five elements to put in it. And the Constitution of the United States only put one of those five elements. Four of them, they left out. That's not very biblical. And the one that they uh, put in, they don't regard anymore. <laughs> they, they don't pay attention to it. And if you don't know what that means, go online and read the book. You can read it for free on our website. And if you don't know where it is, join the Living Network and ask one of the PCMs, one of the personal contact ministers, one of the volunteers who help those who are new to this and need to ask questions. How do you do this? Where do you go? Uh, Where do I find this? Uh, So PCMs. But where do I find others that I may manifest the character of Christ in real ways? That's really the purpose of the network, is help you find others. And in seeking to find others to help, you find yourself, and you find the kingdom, part of the code. So anyway, uh, Robert Eisenman wrote this book, New Testament Code, and people have written about his book. And one of them writes, uh, what is the connection between the two Messiah-centered movements that arose in the first century? The one focused on military Messiah who would liberate the Jewish nation from the oppression it suffered at the hands of the Romans. And the other focused on a spiritual Messiah who would liberate all humanity from the burden of its sins. Which sins? And uh, now, right away, this is someone's impression of Robert Eisenman's book. But it, the first thing that goes to my mind is a scene from, I think it's Life of Brian, or or one of those Monty Python type, uh, John Cleese's deals with it where the the rebels are sitting around saying, what have the Romans ever done for us? And uh, somebody goes and starts listing off, well, roads, the wine, oh yeah, yeah, the wine, education, mathematics, oh yeah, yeah, but I mean, lately, what have they ever done for us? You know, the reality is the Romans were loved by Judeans, for the most part. I mean, Judea was a backwater nation at that particular time in its history. It was not doing well. Uh, There was elements of freedom, but there was a lot of law-breaking going on. There was very little trade, very little money, a lot of poverty. And uh, things were pretty much in disarray. Not because Moses had a bad idea, but because they had strayed from the ways of Moses. They had done that beginning back with Saul. Saul and ended up going into captivity and dividing their nation, and and it was just one bad thing after another. And so they were in a pretty sorry state by this time, but an independent nation of Judea, anyway. Most of Israel was scattered all over the known world. But in Judea, they did have a government. They had had civil wars, and those civil wars, one of the... Uh, uh, elements of the Civil War, one of the the individuals vying for power. And why was he vying for power? Because the people had created an office of a power, which was a rejection of God. And God said that this new office, this ruler who will exercise authority one over the other, will take and take and take and take. He will abuse his power. And the day you cry out, I will not hear you. And so now they're at this point where they're They had this office of power, and men are fighting over the office. And one of those battles was between Aristobulus and Hyrcanus. And Aristobulus invited the Romans in to help him defend his right to rule these people who had rejected God and chosen a leader. Who could exercise authority, which is going out of the presence of God. I mean, that's what Cain did, and Lamech, and Nimrod. That's not where God wants you. He wants you to be free souls under him. That's the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God. Because all liberty is of God, and there is no liberty yet but of God, and anyone who opposes liberty opposes God. And those of you who have listened to the show for a while know where I got that. (laughs) But anyway, That's where God wants you to be, but not if you're going to reject Him. Then you will go under tyrants, and you will be under tribute. Now, we're under tribute anyway, but the tribute is the tribute that is imposed upon us in our hearts and our minds because we're listening to God. In other words, God's government operates entirely on free will offerings, still takes care of the needy of society, and protects you, and helps you, and and serves your needs. When there are real needs where you need help. But it does it by the perfect law of liberty and faith, hope, and charity. The world does it by force. And this, of course, is what, when they talk about John the Baptist, two places they use this word where they translate it different, where they say, presseth into it or uh, taken by force. They're using a word that's talking about the governments of the world that are compelling the offerings of the people. But until John the Baptist, that's the way they did it, at that particular era, because that's not the way they did it in the days of Moses. But John the Baptist said you do it by charity. You do it by loving one another. You do it by free will offerings. If he has no coat, you you share. You know, good Samaritan kind of stuff. But in order to do it efficiently and to maintain that daily administration, you need to come together as a body. And this was the distinction between the followers of Christ and everybody else. Now, immediately when you have such a distinction, and people don't want to address or deal with this issue, they create other distinctions. They say, oh, well, no, you have to believe in the Trinity. Oh, you have to believe in the Eucharist. Oh, you have to believe in... You know, I can't even think of all the different doctrines that they come up with. Oh, you have to accept Jesus. Oh, grace. No works. You know, whatever it is. You have to become distracted by these eschatologies when it's very simple. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Everything hinges on loving God, who is a creative, diligent, hardworking, <laughs> in other words, he's productive. God, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That simple. All the other rigmarole is just a distraction. Now, how you love your neighbor as yourself, that may have a lot of variety to it, but it always comes back down, are you really doing that? Are you strengthening the poor? Are you weakening them? It's not love to weaken them. You see... So, when we we talk about this uh, Jewish nation from the oppression of the Romans, it doesn't really compute because they weren't really all that oppressive. They were oppressing people who wanted to form governments that exercised authority without answering to Rome. Yeah, they were oppressive there. So, there was an element of Jewish nationalism that wanted to throw off the Romans because they wanted to be the dictators. They wanted to be the rulers. They wanted to be the Saul, the Nimrod of their society. That's one of the amazing things if you go over to Israel today and you look at their form of government. Now, there are people that are close to the kingdom that are living in that nation, but the actual form of government as a UN protectorate and created nation is completely contrary to what Moses taught. It is the antithesis of what Moses taught. Yet, yet, they go to the synagogue and they say their prayers and they go and rock away at the wailing wall, but their government is the antithesis of what Moses taught. They have usury. They have uh, use taxes on labor and land. Uh, they are not free souls under God. They do not operate by free will offerings. They exercise authority one over the other. They don't have the elements of a constitution that are written in the Torah that you have to have. They don't have those in their constitution. As a matter of fact, Israelites in what they call Israel today, Jew, citizens of Israel, we won't call them Israelites, we'll call them citizens of Israel, are more in bondage in Israel than they were in bondage in Egypt. <laughs> that's the that's fact. You could just look it up. And there's a cognitive disconnect with them to see that. Absolutely amazing. Same in uh, the Muslim countries. Now, the Muslims recognize uh, Jesus to some degree. They don't like Christians, generally speaking. Generally speaking, because there are some that are, give you the shirt off their backs. There's always these elements of good people, but they're they're in a minority. So much said for democracy. But the reality is, is that Muslims. Uh, recognize Moses, but they're not doing what Moses said. They've created governments that sit in the seat of Moses, but they're not doing what Moses said to do. The same as Christians today. They say they're Christians, but they're not doing what Christ said. But anyway, this idea of liberating the Jews from the Roman oppression was not really true. There was... Some oppression, but they were just oppressing those that were trying to rule over the people and preventing civil war, which is why Jesus was brought to Pontius Pilate for trial. Because they claimed that he was usurping the crown. Of course, he wasn't. And that's why he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And we'll talk more about that when we return. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about Robert Eisman's New Testament Codes, and we're doing this in a series that is related to the idea of two opposing forces, two opposing directions, two opposing ideas, two opposing realms, two opposing kingdoms, two opposing governments, two opposing membranes. And we're entitling it the train series because you don't really do it. You just get on one train or the other. And the train takes you where you want to go. And you have to decide which way you want to go. And then you have to make sure you're getting on the right train. Because they both look alike, pretty much. They're just facing in directions, which is why... The gospel starts with repent, turn around, go the other way. So, this is our train series. And uh, we're going to ask you to get on board and start going the way of the kingdom. Because the other way, the bridge is out. There's no way to eternal life in the other train. And... When Robert Eisman is talking in the New Codes about the liberating the Jewish nation from the oppression it suffered at the hands of the Romans, that's not really accurate. It's the, it was trying to deliver the, uh, them from oppression, but there was an element of this revolution that was simply wanted to be the oppressors. They wanted to be the rulers, they didn't want the Romans telling them what to do. And you'll see this element in all of us where we discover that we have been made bondage in our, uh, brought into bondage in our own land. We are not the home of the free and the land of the brave. We're the home of the enslaved. And we're pretty much cowards and covetous cowards at that. And, uh, and some of us are constitutional covetous cowards. So we want a we want a nation, but we want to be able to oppress our neighbors in democracy. You know, we we want to vote in what we want. Unfortunately, that never works out. And then it, it also, he talks about this spiritual Messiah who would liberate all humanity from the burden of sin. Well, what a sin? Well, one of those major sins other than deciding for ourselves what is good and evil, which is why you create government to elect men who will decide what is good and evil for you. But it is the sin of oppression. And democracies oppress their neighbors. 51% of the people take away the right to the other 49, compel them to make offerings to provide them with free education, free fire departments, free health care, whatever it is. That's all oppression. It's democratic oppression. Worst kind of oppression. The, the oppression of the mob. You see, so, actually, if you draw that dividing line in another place, both the Jewish nation, trying to free them from Roman oppression, uh, stays over on one side, but the Jewish nation trying to free men from all oppression, even their own oppression, and striving to move towards a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, that liberates all the people from the sin of oppression, including our own oppression of our neighbor. Because now we love our neighbor as ourselves then, then, and only then, do we deal with the reality of Christ's gospel. You see, because that's the sin that His this spiritual Messiah was trying to liberate us from. And, And that only begins in a spiritual choice within our own heart, where we decide to love our neighbor, instead of oppress our neighbor. And you can go to church after church after church after church throughout the world today, to synagogues and mosques, and they all, when they leave the mosque, they all go out and join systems that oppress their neighbor, that force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. All their systems do not depend entirely upon faith, hope, and charity. They all go to men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other to obtain reward, benefits, at the expense of that neighbor. And because they do that, they are all snared. They go into bondage. They are made merchandise. Now, those of you who listen to us regularly know that almost everything I'm saying is stated over and over again in the Bible, yet they miss it. And this person writing about Robert Eisenman seems to have missed it, too, because he doesn't make that draw that line between those people who live by faith, hope, and charity, and the perfect law of liberty, liberty loving their neighbor as themselves. And those who want to oppress their neighbor under this, that, or other doctrine, dogma, or uh, ordinance established by governments that they create for themselves because they're going to decide what is good and what is evil. Christ was creating a government. The Bible is about government. And there are only two kinds of government. Those that live by liberty and righteousness and those that exist by force and oppression and control and manipulation. One is of Cain, one is of Christ. Okay, he goes on to say that both had a profound impact, but he's made the division in the wrong place. The militant oppression of the Roman rule ultimately exploded into the largest national liberation struggle of the ancient world, the Jewish wars from about 66 to 70 CE, and continued to reverberate with major and minor uprisings until the uh, Bar Kochila uh, Co- Chiliba uprising. Um, Cochiba, that was it, uh, uprising. You have to think of it in the Hebrew letters. So, <laughs> 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 uh, one about 132 to 135 CE, when the Jews were permanently expelled from their homeland. Uh, the spiritual movement of Christianity gained control of the whole Western world. Uh, more recently, uh, even in the Western expansion, it was brought. But by the time that Western expansion came about, Christianity had undergone a metamorphosis. And apostasy had come in. And it came in because the people were slothful. were, the, It was like Satan being unchained. And everywhere around uh, the 1000s, you know, you had De Bullions and uh, uh, Stephan. And uh, William the Conqueror, and it was just one king after another. And every one of what eventually became European countries were out there oppressing the people, putting down rebellion, which was actually freedom fighters. And a new design in government came about, and it wasn't that new. It was old, but it had renewed. It was like it was born again out of hell where you would have a central ruler or ruling class that oppressed the people. And the only way for that those systems to work, the people had to be willing to oppress their neighbors, to force their neighbors to comply. Because there's always way more you, you know, like Bugs Life. They didn't figure out, hey, you know, we can take these grasshoppers. They don't have any power except... The power of our fear of them. But because of our sloth, new spirits were born up amongst us that allowed these tyrants to take over. And then next thing you know, you have inquisitions. You have churches out there crowning kings over other men, not setting them free. You have churches actually asking those men to impose taxes to support the church, to run the welfare system. And, of course, eventually, now in the last century, the church no longer handles welfare. So, therefore, um, even though they still have tax exemption, they're not supported, although there is talk about supporting churches with tax dollars for doing the welfare thing. But that's just because they're going to be cutting back on your welfare checks. What's happening is the economy is now running on debt. All your welfare, all your benefits, all your social security, all that is paid for out of debt. They borrow money to pay you. There is no money there because there is no division of funds. So if the government is operating in the red, so is their social welfare operating in the red. So whenever you take a benefit, it's not the money that you paid in. That's all gone. Bad management. Uh, I mean, it took a lot of money to buy all those votes to get the democratic socialism uh, to be the predominant form of government in the United States, either under a Republican or a Democratic Party. Because most of the people who say they don't want socialism, they still want public schools, and public schools is socialism. So anyway, we've we've got this whole mindset that's moved over in the same way that Rome was going, in the same way that the Jewish nation was going. Was moving from these free nations into socialist nations. Because tyrants know that if I have a socialist nation, I can gain more and more power. And this job would be easier if they're dictators. And that's the direction they're going. So, anyway, uh, this is what was happening then. This is what they, when they talk about Hellenizing Judea or even Roman government, this is where they're going. They're going towards democracies, and then the democracies go towards socialism, which is why Karl Marx says that he's all for democracy, because he knows that leads to socialism, and with once you have socialism, a communist rule is easy. And unfortunately, a lot of people talking about these subjects can't see that, and so you actually have people out there saying that there's such a thing as Christian communism. And they cannot see that that's not right. And of course, the one individual I'm thinking of is someone who's been on welfare for years. You know, the disability, but still that's welfare. The check comes to him because men exercise authority over his neighbor and force them to pay him. As long as you do that, you will not be free. You, you cannot be free. It is the antithesis of liberty. The way Israel worked when it was a free nation was they still supported those that were truly disabled, but they did it by faith, hope, and charity. Their Levite ministers were their public servants. This was the government. Now what happened, and it's happened again, is that the synagogues and temples began to collect by the force of the Sanhedrin a tax from all those people who signed up for their system of Corbin set up by men like Herod. And the way you signed up is you got baptized. And when you got baptized, you were a member of this system of Corbin, But you had to pay in. This is this Jewish national oppression. But by agreement, by covenant. Because you signed up. If you didn't sign up, you were considered to be idiotous, unregistered. And some had not yet signed up. But many had. Most had, maybe. We can say that. But many had not. Still a minority. In certain sects of the Essenes, uh, like the Nazarite Essenes, they... Well, I guess we were disconnected there for a minute. I hope we're back on the air <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we're talking about uh, this whole system of uh, welfare that Herod had brought in and you signed up by baptism. And uh, in that signing up, you had to pay in. You had a new identity in this system. Along comes John the Baptist and says, No, we're not going to do this by force. It's not the way Moses said to do it. It's the way they do it in Israel today. It's the way they do it in the United States today. You know, the land that once was wilderness and now is full of people from many nations that used to feed all the world. All this is in Ezekiel. But it has gone the way of Balaam, the way of the Nicolaitan, the way of error. And it is, and it thinks it's following Christ. And then there are people in the world today that say, oh, this is a wicked system of oppression. I'm coming out of it. I'm going to the kingdom of God. I'm going to be separate. But they're not tending to the daily ministration. They're not gathering together and paying in to ministers who are really servants, who really come to serve, to take care of the true needy of their society. They're just coming out of the system. You see, they start at the end of the Bible and it says, Come out of her, my people, lest ye be partakers of their sins. But they don't gather together to be partakers of his righteousness. And he started with the instruction to come uh, and turn around and go the other way. The train's going pretty fast. If you want to jump off the train that's headed to perdition, you're probably going to become uh, severely (laughs) road-burned. Because because you're just jumping off. You need to be on the other train. You need to be going the other way. When Paul argued with Agrippa, he's explaining how the kingdom works when he's talking about Moses and, and, and coming out and taking care of one another, he, Agrippa knows what the Christians are doing. He knows that they're taking care of the entire social welfare. Because anybody who got the baptism of Christ instead of the baptism of Herod was cast out of that welfare system run through the government of Judea. They no longer could go down and apply for the benefits of Corbin of Judea, of the Pharisees. They went to church. You see, there's the dividing line. And yet you can go in church after church after church after church after church after synagogue after mosque, whatever. And when they need a benefit, that's not the table they worship at. They go to the men who exercise authority one over the other. Yet, Jesus said we were not to be that way. So, it's very important that we see that. What happened in this uh, Bar uh, kushba and uh, in the Jewish wars of 66 and 70 is this element that wants to throw off the oppression of Rome began to attack oppress the people during during the uh, if you if you read the accounts of the Jewish wars when uh, Titus had uh, Jerusalem all surrounded you could leave you could leave town but you had to leave everything you had your coat your your land your gold your silver your jewels everything of value you had to leave it behind And, of course, we were told in Revelations to leave it behind. And that's what they did. And if they thought you had swallowed the coins, they would cut your belly open. Because they didn't love their neighbor. They loved power. You see, if you hate Satan, I mean, you judgmentally hate and angry with his oppression you're liable to be drawn into being an oppressor yourself next thing you know you'll be telling people you know that you you need to come out you you have two masters you this that and the other thing cuz you're imposing you're not saying follow the holy spirit you're saying do what i do because i do what's right wrong spirit now you may be a good guy but the elements of that spirit are still dwelling in you that are going to lead you to your kutchba And you will be devoured by the Tituses and, and generals of the world. You see, the devil doesn't care whether you conform to him or rebel against him. If you rebel against him, you're in his territory. He loves a good fight. And he, he'll bite your head off, man. <laughs> That's a phrase uh, I, I'm very familiar with because you you are going up against forces that you cannot defeat. It will take a miracle. So you have to believe in miracles. And this dividing line between the true spiritual Messiah who wants you to love your neighbor as yourself and stop oppressing them because that is one of the sins. The other sin is that you're going to decide the doctrine. You're not you're not just repeating the doctrines of Jesus Christ. You're making up your own doctrines and saying that you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to say these words. Even though Jesus says it's not what you say, it's what you do. And then as soon as you hear the people saying, oh, you have to say these words, the next thing you hear them saying is you don't have to do anything. You see, they've gone completely opposite of Christ. They're professing Him. But they're actual workers of iniquity because they're not telling you to follow that spiritual leading of the Holy Spirit. They're saying, follow me. Do as I do. Do what I do. Do it when I do it. You know, do it as I did it. Now, it's a little thing, but it's a lot. Because you don't want any of those things that are of the adversary. You don't want to be oppressing people at all. You want to be going the other way. There are really only two possible answers according to this uh, report on Robert Eisenman. He says, the first is that the spiritual movement drew lessons and inspiration from the military movement but transformed its substance into something more cosmopolitan, more universal, more spiritual, or at very least, more Hellenized. And this is where they really stray. But you can you can almost say that because, see, if you look at Hellenization, uh, you can see there are some good things in Hellenization. Because the Greeks were not completely wrong about everything. And so when you see elements of the Greek Hellenization, you say, oh, they became more Hellenized. And he says that they drew uh lessons from this uh military movement. Well, actually... The truth is, the true Christianity drew all of its lessons from the Holy Spirit. They, those lessons may have been emphasized in what happened to the military movement, because Jesus said those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But you see, those Jewish nationalists who wanted to throw off the oppression of the Romans, they still wanted to live by the sword, but they wanted to live by their sword. They still wanted to force the contributions of the people and have their social welfare system, their Corbin that made the Word of God to none effect. This is why Christ said that Corbin that made the Word of God to none effect was so important. But if you gloss over that and you say, I want to get back to my constitutional rights, I want to get back to the principles of the Constitution, but I still want to have my social welfare. I still want my social security and I still want my health care and I still want all these things. You're not going the way of Christ. You're going to go the way of the Kuchpa and be destroyed. And we'll tell you more about the way you should be going but your choice next time on Keys to the Kingdom.
0: Welcome to the keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of his Holy Church
1: welcome to Keys of the Kingdom I'm Brother Gregory and we're talking about the Kingdom of God we're talking about the two choices you have before you what train are you going to get on <laughs> Are you going to get on the train that uh, is headed to perdition or the, head, uh, the train that's headed to the kingdom of God? That's the idea. Repent. But you have to know what to repent of. And what you need to repent of is the character of Cain. The Cain Syndrome. The Saul Syndrome. Uh, we've talked about these on other shows. The Cain Syndrome is the fact that you want to rule over your brother. You want to make him do what you think is right. You have decided for yourself what is good and evil. You're going to decide that he needs to contribute to your welfare. And you don't want any man left behind. You want everybody contributing equally. You want to make sure they do that. Because you're God. And there is no other God but you. The reality is God wants you to have the right to make that decision. And he wants you to give your neighbor the right to make that decision. And any government that takes away that right to make the decision is not of God, but is of Cain. And if you want to elect a ruler who can protect you and exercise authority over you and your neighbor, then that is a rejection of God. It was a rejection of God when they elected Saul. Wouldn't it be a rejection of God today? Absolutely. God did not institute these governments. You did. He let you do it. You know, they talk about the church, a corporation is is of Caesar. And it is. A corporation of Caesar is of Caesar. corporation of Christ is of Christ. Well, who established the church? According to the legal definition, the church was established by Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Black's Law Dictionary 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9th edition. The church is established by Jesus Christ. If you incorporate to another state, another government, another authority, then all other previous incorporation is null and void as if it never happened. Therefore, once your church incorporates, you're not established by Christ. You're established by your corporate charter of the state. You are now a church of the state. You are now officially a church of the state. But the problem didn't begin there problem again when you created the state. When you look to the state. When you pray to the state. When you apply to the state. Because the state is composed of men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. You're not to be doing that. Now that doesn't mean that the government you should do away with the government or fight to overthrow it because you don't like the oppression of the Roman Empire or some goofy thing like that. It has a place there. To punish the wicked. Who are the wicked? The slothful. Those who create it. Those who establish it. Those who pray at its altars. Those who are registered to it. That's what it's there for. To bring you under tribute. Because the slothful should be under tribute. You wouldn't even take care of the widows and orphans without it forcing you to do it. Could you take care of all the Social welfare needs of your society, unless there were men out there forcing you to contribute. You tell me if I said that's what we need to do, you'd say, well, everybody won't contribute. There won't be enough. People will go hungry in the streets and they'll starve. Of course, we didn't have it always and people weren't starving always. People did starve in Jamestown and uh, in Plymouth. They starved every year. They starved to death. Until they said, to each according to his ability. Instead of, to each according to his need, from each according to his ability. In other words, when we gave people the freedom to produce, the means of production was put back into the hands of the people. Starvation ended in both Jamestown and in Plymouth. The interesting thing about that, in my opinion, the really interesting cognitive fascination is that that happened at the same time in both places. And they didn't have cell phones. Nobody texted uh, Plymouth and said, you know, we're going to do the whole free enterprise thing. Uh, we're going to see if that works because we're tired of starving every year. They didn't send that message. You know, and they didn't get a laugh out loud back. They just both decided simultaneously in different parts of America because, in their collective consciousness, they knew that they had to give everybody the opportunity to produce for themselves and to distribute what they produced according to their own conscience. How did they get that knowledge at the same time? How did they come to that conclusion at the same time? They had all come from Europe. They all came with that idea. They were actually quoting the Bible in Jamestown. Oh, we have to take care of the poor. We have to take care of the needy. And their leader, the swashbuckling guy that should be a half a dozen movies about, Uh, looked at them and he quoted the Bible. If you don't work, you don't eat. He actually said, he went back to free enterprise. He went back to private ownership of property. Private ownership of the means of production. That's not communism. Communism, there is no private ownership of the means of production. Socialism, there really isn't either. Capitalism, there is. People say, oh, capitalism. How's that working out for you? You don't have capitalism in the United States, folks. You haven't had capitalism for a long time. Because the means of production has not belonged to you. You don't own your land. You don't own your labor. There's a heavy tribute tax on all those things. And tribute is usury. It's an excise. It's a tax on the use. How come they can tax you on your labor? Because your labor doesn't belong to you. Because you waived a right to a portion of your labor when you signed up for Social Security. Because it was a dual tax. We explain all that in the Covenant to the Gods, but I don't want to get you all worked up with that. Next thing you know, you'll be trying to throw off your oppressors without taking back your responsibilities. And that's where you have to, that is the code. You have to take back your responsibilities to take care of your needy, and you don't have to come out of the system to do that. You have to get the system out of your heart to do that. You have to stop depending upon men who exercise authority one over the other to take care of your needies, and the church is the perfect place to start. But your churches aren't doing that. So it absolutely does you no good If you unincorporate your church and you're not taking care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity, through the congregations in your church, through faith, hope, and charity, and you can't make that step with one step, start with small steps, start doing it, start looking into it, start setting up a network, divide your church into the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and start taking care of the needy in your congregations so that you do not have to go to the benefactors who exercise authority. That is repenting. That is turning around. That is going the other way. And you need to start taking those steps because you're not ready for Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, they had to go cold turkey. Anybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was cast out of the welfare system, run through the synagogues and and the temple. They could no longer get benefits. Those old ladies could no longer get, uh, free bread and care from the treasury of the temple. They had to be taken care of right away, instantly, instantly. And of course that's why we see in Acts 6 where we see the daily administration is neglecting because they weren't ready to do it yet. They were ready to some degree because Jesus and John the Baptist had been teaching them how to do that for years. How to share their coat with those who had none. Didn't just go around and, you know, find some bum on the street and hand them a coat and say, oh wow, see, I'm doing what Jesus said. No, he said, gather together in my name and do it. Because otherwise, you're gonna miss somebody. Somebody's gonna be around the corner and they're gonna freeze to death because you didn't see them. You have to invest your time and energy in forming a network That actually cares about each other and watches out for each other. That divides you from the world. And makes you holy. But you can't do that unless Christ is in you. Because you're too selfish. You were born selfish. You were born in sin with this sin of selfishness and oppression. You screamed at your mother if she didn't feed you on time. You whined, (laughs) whined, am I saying that right? Whined and cried when you didn't get your way. And you're still doing it. Grow up. Start going the way of Christ. And Robert here missed this, at least according to this one synopsis. So he talks about this Hellenized, But it's not really Hellenized. And he didn't really become more cosmopolitan or universal. There was an element. You know, most people don't realize, and I'll, I'll say it again here, because a lot of our listeners do know, Constantine's church is a different church than that established by Christ. Constantine's church was the beginning of the corporate state church. He ordered all known bishops at that time to come to his council. There were over 1,200 uh, so-called invitations sent out. There should have been, if you could count the people that would have come with these bishops, aides, etc., there should have been at least 2,000 people meeting. You know, the Temple of Ephesus, they had seating for over 20,000 people. How many do you think of those 1,200 to 2,000 people showed up? 319. That's it. The next time they had a meeting, 150 showed up. This is nobody. And who is these 150? He bestowed on those who came millions and millions of dollars in property and silver and treasures And still only 150 showed up the next time. But when you read history, they lead you to believe that the whole church was following the ways of Constantine. Not so. Not so. But eventually, a thousand years later, the church of Constantine said, Do it my way. And if you didn't, You often got burned at the stake or driven out of your home. And how did they find people that were willing to do that? Because when you drive them out of their home, you get to have their home. So they go up north. They find a village. They say, bow down to this new church. And if you don't bow down to it, we'll call you a heretic. We'll strip you of all your clothes. And we'll drive you out into the woods naked if you show back up here, we'll impale you. If you don't accept this church as the ruler of your soul, and many of them were driven out. So who got their home? Who got their lands? Who got their ox? Who got their properties? Those men driving them out because they were learning the art of warfare and we had lost that art of warfare what is the art of warfare more than anything else it's how to march together how to come together you know your your story the lord of the rings you got seven guys out there trying to fulfill this mission to bring down the power and the major thing they have to overcome is the divisions between them They have to act on behalf of others, not simply on behalf of themselves. This is the dividing line between those seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness and those who are just seeking their own selfish righteousness. They're not coming together. They're not coming together for the benefit of others. They're coming together so that they can be free. And they're telling everybody else, you should be free too. But they're not coming together to be that kingdom of God, that government of God. That's no good. That's not the way. So anyway, he talks about... Second is that the archetypal personage of Christianity, John the Baptist, Jesus, Simon Peter, and ultimately James, were in fact leaders of an anti-Roman resistance. That's not really true, because they were told to resist not evil. So they weren't really the resistance. But that the record of their actual activities was mostly overwritten. That's true. With generally a reverse significance by the enemies who ultimately defeated them. More specifically, by the ideological representatives of these enemies. Now, to some degree, that's true, but they didn't hide it completely. It took a long time to get it really well hidden. You have to remember, it was Constantine who commissioned the compilation of what we call the Bible today. He did it to Eusebius, who was paid money, to compile at least 50 copies of what we know today as the Bible. Although it's, it's not identical, but it's, it's very similar. And of the hundreds and hundreds of books that were available that could have been incorporated into what he used to be is called the Bible, he only picked those that he wanted and he excluded those he didn't want. There's all kinds of historical accounts of these times of what went on. And this is what, and now with the adding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Robert Eisenman has done a great deal of study looking at these peripheral documents. And and come to some startling conclusions. And some of them are not half wrong. They're actually very fascinating. But if you don't know where to make this division between Christianity and other religions, other You see, Social Security is a form of religion. It's how you take care of the needy of your society. But you just simply do it by compelled offerings. And the church does it by free will offerings. That's the division. So now you can go anywhere in the world and take a look. How are we taking care of the needy of our society? How are we taking care of health, education, and welfare? How are we promoting the general welfare? Through force? Or through faith, hope, and charity? Because that's the dividing line. And so, you can go to your church and you can tell me what your eschatology is and what your theology is and what you sing and, you know, what kind of icons you put up. Doesn't mean anything to me. That's just the outside appearance. What's going on inside those hollow, hollowed walls? Are you taking care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you bearing fruit? You see, there's the dividing line. There's, there's the separation of goats from sheep. So there, there was a distortion, and there was an ultimate defeating of what was really Christianity. But it wasn't for a thousand years, in the ten hundreds, and then eventually through the Inquisition. And through the translation, why do you think the guys were getting their tongues cut out and murdered and burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English and then printing the Bible? Gutenberg's assistant was executed for printing the Bible. They didn't want you to know, but they had a, they devised a plan. We'll let them read it, but we'll tell them what it means. Let's go back to Jamestown and, and Plymouth. Simultaneously, those Europeans suddenly realized that we need to return the right to own the means of production, which is you. You are the means of production. Because a farm doesn't produce anything unless there's a farmer. So you're the means of production. You have to have control of the means of production. That's called liberty. You have the right to choose how to work and where to work and what to plant and what to see, You and, and whatever you produce is yours. And then you have to decide how to distribute that to the needy amongst you. That's liberty. If you don't have that power, and nowadays you don't, then you're not free. But as soon as they went that way, starvation ended. Ended. Now, we've gone back the other way, so starvation will begin shortly. News at 11. But, why did they simultaneously come to the same conclusion? And why in America? Why did it take so long for them to catch on? Well, I tell you, it was the American Indian. The American Indian lived in this harsh wilderness environment. Now, I'm not saying all of them, because they had slaves and they had abuses and they they took away rights of their fellow tribes. They were warring with each other. But because of their scattered and and, uh, independent lifestyle, there was a large element amongst the Indians that lived that way, where they had control over the means of production. And that idea, collectively in their minds, finally transferred over collectively to the minds of those Europeans that came now. Part of that process was half of the people that came over died the first year. (laughs) So they were no longer a part of the collective consciousness. So there was this huge die-off. And what that is, is that when you gather in your midst, people who are not collectively on the same train, same path as you are, sailing the same waters, going the same way. If you bring them into your group, they will undermine your understanding. You will not see as clearly. They will clank their cymbals You know, they'll they'll repeat their religious rhetoric. They'll repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat this verse in this chapter, etc., etc. But they will keep you from collectively coming into one accord. So that's why Paul says from such, stay away. Have nothing to do with these ones, the backbiters, these gossipers these false accusers. You know, call them out. Rebuke them. Do it in love because you want them to see the error of their way. But you have to do it. You have to say, you're not walking with me. You're tripping me up. You're tripping up my fellow brethren. You're not following the path. When you're ready to follow the path, I'm willing to walk with you, but I'm not going to walk with you if you keep going over here. It's like they're barn-sour horses. You know what a barn-sour horse is? You take it out on the desert. No matter which direction you're going, it wants to go back home. (laughs) It'll just keep circling around until it's headed back home. You know, if you're not paying real close attention. So what you have to do is give it a mission. You know, I could take the old barn shower mare out, and if I'm herding sheep, I can keep them on the straight and narrow much easier. And he'll, she'll still try to turn back, but uh I can keep her on the straight and narrow because I give her something to do, something to occupy her mind so she stops thinking about the barn. Problem is, like on our network, we give them something to do and they don't do it. That's why we have created certain groups and the network that are row-only groups. You have to do it. You have to row it together. Other people say, well, we're rowing, but you're not rowing together. Now, anybody who's been on a rowing team knows that if you don't row together, you're not going to win. You're not going to get there. You're going to end up going in circles. you got to row together. you got to keep on that straight path together in one accord. Christ knew that. So what is that direction? That direction is to start taking care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to call and gather and evangelize people to doing that? Are you ready to work as a team to do that? Because you better get ready. Because they're going to be cutting off your welfare. They're going to be cutting. You know, Inflation is going to run rampant. They're going to strangle you from every different direction. The system, the unrighteous mammon that you are dependent upon today will fail. Don't wait till the last minute. Start turning around and going back. John the Baptist said it. Jesus said it. Simon said it. If you're going to be coveting your neighbor's goods of the agency of government, you will be made merchandise. Paul said it. David said it. What should have been for your welfare has become a snare. Proverbs said it. If you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite, you want lots of benefits, put a knife to your throat because he serves you deceitful meats. He will make you a slave. And he has made you a slave. And the dog has returned to his vomit and the pig to his mire. And you need to repent of that. And what is it you're repenting of? Oppressing your neighbor. Forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. Producing a system of Corbin that makes the word of God to none effect. You've all done it. You've all participated in it. It wasn't necessarily your idea, but you fell for it. Now, if you want to come out of them, start doing the right thing. Don't start jumping over the fence and running through the streets yelling you're free. That's not the answer. The answer is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and that righteousness includes taking care of your needy. And then God will provide that you get back the means of production. He will open the door. But that knocking is saying, I want to walk this way. Show me you want to walk this way by walking this way in your local congregations. And why I say in your local congregations? Because those congregations have to care about the next congregation as much as they care about their so therefore they have to be in a network. This is what the early church was doing. It was organizing in the tens, hundreds, and thousands that we see all over Europe, which we cover in the book, That Kingdom Come. All over Europe for a thousand years. But then they got slothful. And Satan was unchained. And the adversary came out and created the new unholy Roman Empire. And that's where you're at today. And it's coming to an end, too, because history does repeat itself. He goes on in this report to the extent that the question of this connection is posed at all. The first answer is almost always given generally without even allowing for an alternative. In the New Testament Code, Robert Eisman argues forcefully and convincingly for the second answer. The second Archetypal personage of Christianity, John the Baptist, Jesus, Simon Peter, and ultimately James were the leaders of an anti-Roman resistance. Anti-oppression resistance. In other words, we were going to operate by the perfect law of liberty. They weren't, they had no need to overthrow Rome. They knew that Rome had its place. It was there to punish the wicked. Who are the wicked? All those socialists who wanted to force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. That's the wicked. Those are the ones who would be snared. Those are the ones who would be trapped. Those are the ones who would be bound in a system that would oppress them and eventually fail. But Christians were doing something completely different, as John Cleese would say. And now for something completely different. Because that's what Christianity was. But again, that dividing line. Are you going to live by faith, open charity, and the perfect law of liberty? Or are you going to live by forcing your neighbors to contribute to your welfare? Because one is Christianity, and the other is apostasy. And I don't care whether your church is incorporated or not. I mean, we have articles showing you that you shouldn't be incorporating in your church. But like I said, it doesn't do you any good not to... You to unincorporate your church if you do not incorporate it according to Christ. In other words, incorporate His ways into your activities to become the body of Christ. You need to do that. Not just unincorporate. Not just get out of the system, but get into the system of Christ. And this is the code. This will open up your eyes and you will see what you could not see before. And that's that's what we're going to be talking about. Because he goes into other books like the Foundation of Christianity and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we'll see and we'll start connecting some of these dots so you can see the wholeness of the gospel. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we're talking about this division between true Christianity and the apostasy. We're talking about the kingdom of God as a real government. That's what it's defined as in, uh, in reference to the church in Black's Law Dictionary. One form of government. And we've defined the difference between that form of government and all other forms of government. The government of God is operating on faith, hope, and charity, and the perfect law of liberty. But it is actually still taking care of health, education, and welfare. It is still the FEMA of the people. In other words, it's a faith emergency ministry auxiliary that helps you in the time of catastrophe. You know, I was always wondering... I knew that the, the early church was organized into the tens, hundreds, and thousands, the same as early Israel. But yet, I was reading in there and saw in Acts 6 that they were picking seven ministers. And that scene why did they name only seven ministers that they were picking? What, is, it, is this the same or is this something different or what is this? Well... Lo and behold, there I find it in the Old Testament where they tell you to pick seven ministers. Even eight, they say. But seven, even eight. And what are they talking about? What are they doing? They're actually creating an institution of God and they're telling you how to do it. And you're doing it to because you don't know what catastrophe is coming. In other words, there was an actual purpose for the, the and job that goes along with this. You wouldn't know this in your modern churches because they've strayed so far away from the simplicity of what the church is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be feeding the sheep, taking care of the needs. You know, I don't go out and feed hand feed the sheep. I live out on the desert and I'm a shepherd by trade. Actual real sheep. The only time you get sheared in this flock is if you got you're covered with wool. <laughs> so anyway, the uh uh the sheep Feed themselves. I just take them out there and say, "Hey, there's a field full of grass. Have at it." You know, and and I know where there's larkspur, and I don't take them up there, and I and I know where there's death camas and tansy root, and and I I noticed that there's some death uh, uh, poison parsnips growing along some of the ditches, but that's not usually a problem with the sheep because you got to get out in the water in order to get them, but. Um, I do have cows, and I don't want them eating those poison parsnips out there in the ditch, so I may have to do something about killing them out a little bit more. But, basically, they feed themselves. If I have to feed them, if I have to bring them food and bring them water, it's because there's a problem. Now, I'll do that and try to get them back on their feet. Uh, My son and I threw a sheep over the fence the other day. We were taking the sheep back to the desert. And we noticed it was an old, old sheep. She had a lamb this year and everything, but she was an old sheep and she just wasn't making it. She she was having a hard time. She just getting too old. Her joints probably hurt as bad as mine do. So I, I ran around and cut her off on foot and uh, uh, drove her back to this little brushy area. Uh, where there's some olive trees and a fence, and she went back there. And then my son came up and we we grabbed a hold of her cause it's hard to catch sheep out in the open like that. But uh, grabbed a hold of her and we carried her over and lifted her over the fence and put her into a pen, a fenced field with a llama. <laughs> so she's in there with a the llama to keep her company, and the llama will protect her because she's not with the herd anymore, but she's just retired. Because she's just she can't make it out there in the desert. When Israel left Egypt, it left with all the old people. It left with the sick people. It left with the infirm. It left with the indigent. It left with the rich. And it left with everybody. That's a big deal. These guys who are leaving the system one at a time, and they're saying we're taking off, we're jumping the fence. We're not gonna pay into the system anymore. Uh, because we're separate. Because Jesus has freed us. Jesus never gave you license to disregard your contracts and your debts. He didn't say you could just, you could just nullify all your contracts whenever you get around to it. At any time, because I died on the cross. Now, you can come out of the system now, but you can only come out as the Levites came out. That's the way you come out. As the Levites came out, and you lay yourself down as a servant of God. Now, there's a lot to it, more to it than that. I won't get into it here on this radio. But there's a lot of people out there that are so disgusted with the system, so angry at the system, that they just want to, you know, thumb their nose at it. I'll I'll put it that way that they want to just to dis, disregard it. And that's not a good thing. That's not righteous. You have to give to Caesar what is Caesar. We see this in the Old Testament when they were in Pharaoh's hands. They'd gone into bondage because they made a deal that you take care of us and we'll pay 20% of everything we earn into you every year. And you take care of our social welfare needs. And they... Went into bondage, and the reason they went into bondage is because they sold their own brother into bondage. Had they not sold Joseph into bondage, Joseph would have told them that the famines were coming, and they would have prepared, but they didn't know that they were coming, so they didn't prepare, but the Pharaoh did. So they went under the Pharaoh instead of the Pharaoh going under them, and that's the way it should be, because they were jealous and envious. They were lacking the spiritual qualities of God. And therefore they should go into bondage. And that's what governments are instituted for. To punish the wicked. And that's why everybody is feeling the strain and punishment of of big government today is because you're the wicked. You don't change that by throwing off those that are punishing you. That are making your life difficult. Or by thumbing your nose or jumping over the wall. You do that by returning to the responsibilities of being the faithful who live by faith. Who are obedient in faith. So anyway, we're talking about Robert Eisman and, uh, his New Testament codes. And we were saying that he had this idea that, that the, these leaders were this uh, of John the Baptist and Jesus and Simon Peter were some sort of anti Roman resistance and he uh, there, there was a book written called the Foundation of Christianity it, it, almost a hundred years ago by Carl uh, kutsky and he presents somewhat of the same idea but of course uh Iceman gets to pull on the Dead Sea Scrolls and other archaeological discoveries that have come along since then and uh he makes a pretty good case for it, but he is dividing the line wrong. The resistance was not against Rome, because see, Rome once took care of all of their needy through faith, open charity too. They did it to what was basically the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They call them the the hearse. You know, these gatherings of families. They were a patriarchal society, and their original senate had no power to make law. There was no Caesar for 500 years. There was no Caesar. They got into the proconsuls for a while, but that was the progression towards Caesar. But they were basically a republic, and their army was supported by free will offerings originally. You, you you can't find out hardly anything about early taxation in Rome because it hardly existed, because it was done by voluntary duty of one to another. And if you did not exercise that duty, if you didn't show up for your neighbor. They pretty much didn't show up for you, and you didn't have big, large families, <laughs> because nobody would back you up, and your your element of society would decrease and decrease and decrease. But when you were industrious, and you were hardworking, and you were unselfish, everybody was there for you, and you prospered, you see, because there was a natural governing agent, because the right to decide was in the hands of the people. Liberty has a way of doing that. Now, you will breed large families and, uh, and get large populations amongst other socialist systems. But, you know, today in America, over 24 million children are are being raised without their fathers. 24 million children. There's only 30, 360 million people in America. And that's a very high statistic. And it's not because the fathers are being killed like in some countries. It's because the fathers are abandoning their families. And this is to say nothing of the divorce on the other side, the wife's side. And it, we, are, Our society is breaking down right before our eyes. It has been for almost a hundred years now. Because we've moved over to this socialist state. And we've done it gradually. So like the frog in the water, you haven't even noticed it. But, the foundation of Christianity, what it does explain, and what what uh, uh, Robert is also telling us, is that this Christian movement of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, Simon Peter, and eventually James, was a governmental movement. These the, the people that were Christians were in another government. They were cast out of one and they were in another. Now, there are certain elements of the government that continued to exist... And Agrippa received the arguments and he said, hey, you know, this makes sense. But you guys read those arguments and don't even understand that he's talking about a form of government because you don't realize that most of the power that modern governments have, have that power because you've gone to them and applied for benefits. The same as Israel did when they applied to Pharaoh for benefits. The same as you have done when you applied to the government for benefits and signed up, became this registered citizen. You were moving away from the position of natural law and into a position of being subject to equity, managed as a member of a trust. This is why Peter is telling you, through covetousness, great swelling words, they would make merchandise of you. You have laid yourself down on their altar. And now they can cut and cut and cut away until there's nothing left of you. And you have become bound again in the elements of the world. The question is of profound importance, he goes on to write. At its core, Western civilization is a synthesis of Hellenistic and Judaic cultures. This synthesis is generally viewed as an ideological event, a merger of elements of each culture to form Christianity, which then provided the intellectual and practical framework of Western development. But that's changed. You know, if you look at Christianity today, it's not Christianity 200 years ago. It's certainly not Christianity 1500 years ago. It's completely different than the first century church. It's all about what you believe. It's not about what you do. They even get mad at you if you talk about doing anything. Oh, that works! But originally Christianity is what you do because by their fruits you would know them. If you believed in Christ, you would be taking care of the needy to faith, hope, and charity. If you didn't believe in Christ, you'd be doing something else. All these Christians are doing something else now. Because they don't really believe in Christ, they're under a strong delusion, and there's a collective disconnect. Because they don't see this simple dividing line between a real Christian and a false Christian. Because a real Christian is keeping his commandments, and we know all the commandments hinge on two things. Love thy neighbor as thyself, and love God with all thy heart and thy mind and thy soul. So we know that's what Jesus is saying to do, and you tell me it's love to send men to your neighbor's house to force them to contribute to your welfare, because you don't want to suffer. That doesn't sound like Christ to me. I don't think you believe in Christ. I don't care if you get out of the system. If you're not doing something about that, you don't believe in Christ. He says, but Eisman works, shows that this viewpoint stands, matters on their head. It stands a lot of things on their head. One of the things Eisman does is he he, uh, deals with names. And, And in many cases, he's probably right. But not all, because one of the problems back then is, you know, one fellow pointed out that if you were in the public square, in the shopping area of the public square where everybody is out there buying vegetables and fruits and what have you, and you yelled the word Mary, half the women would turn around. <laughs> they didn't have a wide choice of names. There are at least six Jesuses that I can talk about in just a handful of writings of the time of Christ. Six different guys who were named Jesus. Simons, they're all over the place. jamess all over the place. Uh, it's really hard to tell who's who by names. and Which is why then they created another thing where they would call Simon Peter. <laughs> so when you call him Peter... Now you've, he's got two names. So this guy writes all about him, but he only calls him Peter. This guy writes all about him, but he only calls him Simon. And this guy over here sometimes calls him Simon, sometimes calls him Peter, sometimes calls him Simon Peter. And so, how do you know who they're talking about? And then, you know, we, we know a little bit about, very little bit about the different documents that we're talking about, too. You know, there are some people that say that James and Stephen are the same. And there's a whole account Of James being on the steps, attacked and by these thugs, political thugs, and stoned, but not to death. He's got broken bones, a broken leg, and he's carried away by his supporters, and he's hidden out somewhere in the wilderness, and he heals back up, and he comes back. And then they eventually throw him off a wall, and he's killed just before the fall of Jerusalem. And they say that Stephen is James, same guy. But I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying there is a report of the times that says that is insinuating that. And so Stephen was a martyr, but he just didn't die at the stoning. He died later on. And you see, the, the first part of you know about the first 15 books of Acts, or first chapters of Acts, is a compilation. is written in a different person. You know, we get into Acts 16, it begins to sh- switch over to my documents. My documentation. But the point is, is that, uh, even the Gospels, they come from the Q Gospels. There were all kinds of stuff being written, and then they, this is, they weren't written, you know, the day after Jesus Christ was crucified. They, these were written later, based on a lots of different things that were written in accounts. So then you, you have a tendency to get some things out of order. It doesn't mean that they're not true, it's just that, you have a tendency to fill in the gaps based on the Bible stories that you were taught, taught. The number of people that tell me that, oh, the Bible says this and the Bible says that and I say, no, it doesn't. And they go and they try to find it and they can't find it. It doesn't say those things. Their Bible school told them those things were true because those were conclusions of other people. This is how you get these eschatologies that are actually in opposition to Christ but are, uh, they claim Christ said. Because they take things... This is why you need to study history. Because the Bible was written in the context of history. And you won't understand things like Corbin. Or my kingdom's not of this world. Or why Jesus never even mentions charity, but actually does mention charity all kinds of times. But the translators translate the word love when Jesus says it and charity when Paul says it. Same word. You see, your thinking is being shifted. And... uh Robert talks about parallel texts. Uh, what is most satisfying about the book that he writes? This guy writes about uh, Eisman's book, uh, The Codes. Even when Eisman is working with well-worn materials, he is able to throw startling new light upon it by finding parallels between familiar documents with a much overlooked sources. And there's tremendous amount of sources about the time. And once you begin to understand that the conflict, even in early Christianity persecutions, you you know, we've talked about it before, when they're trying the Christians in North Africa, they're accusing them of not swearing by the genius of the emperor. Because they say, we have religion that takes care of our needy through our temples, our Bureau of Vital Statistics, where you register your birth and... And uh, our our bureau for uh, handing out uh, food stamps, which was actually a little coin, token, uh, which allowed them to go and collect food at giveaway programs of the government. And this was all run through the temples because it was their social welfare. And the Christians weren't participating, so therefore they weren't paying into that. And even in 150 A.D., and Justin the Martyr says, that, explaining to the emperor how it works with the Christians, is those that have enough share with those that don't have enough. And the president of our meetings, whoever it is that are elected, who doesn't exercise authority, but is a servant, a Dioconus, makes sure that everybody is taken care of. This is how we do it. He's telling them how we do it. He knew at that time that Rome did it by collecting a tax from everybody, going into the hands of the priests of their temples and their government officials and then redistributing wealth that way. But it was done by force. Until John the Baptist. Everybody at that time was doing it. If you, When they say that in the Bible, until John the Baptist, everyone did it by force, they were talking about at that time. Because if you go back a couple hundred years before in the Roman history, they were doing it by free will offerings. They were building the temples by free will offerings. And those temples took care of the social welfare needs of the people. Even if you go to the Teutons, that's what their priests did. They had their Shabbat, where they uh, uh, would give donations to the priest, and he would take care of the needy of their society. Those people whose you know, husband died, or their family died, or they were crippled, or whatever, and they needed help. And he would do that with the free will contributions. And this is what bound the Teuton tribes together, so that 15,000 Roman-trained, well-equipped centurion forces and legions could be destroyed to the man by only 12,000 Teutons. Because the Teutons were bound together by faith, hope, and charity. This is how free societies operate. You want to be a free society, you have to bind yourself together that way. It's not about signing some papers and getting out of the system. It's about coming together and getting into the system of Christ into pure religion. That's what it's about. He goes on, uh, for example, many scholars recognize the ideology conflict between James and Paul uh, is the engine that drives the entire New Testament. I don't recognize that because I don't see any conflict between James and Paul. I see a conflict between what you think Paul is saying and what you think James is saying. But I actually see Paul talks about works, talks of, he, he, over and over again he repeats. Uh, obeying in faith. Obedience in faith. Uh, Righteousness in faith. Righteousness is what you do. It's not what you think. I thought about doing the right thing, so I'm saved. Jesus tells you a whole parable about two brothers. One who said he was going to do it, but didn't. And one who said he wasn't going to do it, but then repented and did it. Which one was the son? The one who did it. Not the one who thought about it. So it's not what you think, it's what you do. You don't earn it, but what you do is an expression of your real faith. If you have real faith, you will do it. If you believe in him, you will keep his commandments. And one of those is to take care of the needy amongst yourselves, the family of men. He who does not provide for his family is worse than a heathen, no matter what papers he files. No matter how much he says he's out of the system. no no matter how many times he quotes the Bible. If he's not taking care of the needy, he's not following Christ. Now, does that, that mean, again, does that mean you go out to skid row and start handing out blankets to everybody? Well, you certainly can do that if the Spirit leads you to do that. But what about the people in your own community that are forced to go to benefactors to exercise authority and snare themselves and their children and their children's children forever in a system of perpetual debt? What are you doing about them? Now, of course, where do you start? Well, you should start finding other people that are willing to see the truth of the gospel and the ways of Christ and start gathering together with them. And that's why we created the Living Network at thelivingnetwork.org so that you can tr- start finding these people. Does that mean everybody who comes on that network has that spirit in them? Absolutely not. But it's a place to start looking. So that's what we recommend is you, you start looking there. And we'll talk more about Robert Eisman and his views so that you can begin to see the view from the kingdom point of view. Until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you.
0: You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.